you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Come on! Uh, Get in there, Maverick! It's no good. Cornelius and I have been indicted for heresy. It is evil. It is so evil. It is a bad, bad plan. All right, you know what that music means, and today's going to be fun. We're going to see how many people I can annoy today, because we are going to look at some heresy and see how many people will never talk to me again. Hi, here we go. If your gospel's about you, uh, I got bad news for you. It's not the gospel of God. And if you haven't read the title yet and you have no idea what I'm talking about, (laughs) today we are going to get to a, a personal favorite of mine. We're going to deal with a theology that if you ask the average non-Christian, you know, just a random dude on the street, to name a theologian, they would name a proponent of this theology, the prosperity gospel. And I say this one's a a personal favorite of mine because it's the prosperity gospel is actually the reason I am in ministry. Listening to prosperity gospel guys on TV butcher their Bibles on a regular basis annoyed me so much that my, my wife finally looked at me and goes, why don't you teach the Bible instead of yelling at the TV all the time? And off to seminary I went, and now you have to deal with the consequences of that as we sit here and go through this. Now, <clears throat> arising from a, a worldview conglomeration, sort of at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, the uh, prosperity gospel typically, although not exclusively, excuse me, got a cough there. Typically, although not exclusively, it has its roots in the churches of Pentecostalism. I love you Pentecostal guys, but this one's mostly on you. Now, the combination of Pentecostal theology as as well as various other uh, post-industrial revolution worldviews in the growing 20th century idealism there kind of gave rise to what we would call the modern prosperity movement. Now, in the middle 20th century, uh, in large part due to the quote-unquote healing revivals, and yes, I'm putting those in air quotes because most of them are shams, the, uh, the gospel, the prosperity gospel begins to grow, but after World War II, you get this growth of the American middle class in a burgeoning desire for materialism that the prosperity gospel just like sinks its fangs into beautifully. Now, as you move past that period, not that that time frame has gone away, but in the latter half of the 20th century, you want to know why we're still dealing with this? The prosperity gospel moved to the airwaves, and its leaders became the pioneers of quote-unquote Christian television. And yes, that's quote-unquote Christian television, because it's television, but it's not exactly Christian. And yes, we're looking at you, TBN. During this phase, moving away from the traveling revival idea to the television idea is when you see the power shift. You get the old guard like Oral Roberts and William Branham. They are moving away and you get the new generation of guys from Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn and T.D. Jakes to the modern proponents such as Joel Osteen, uh, Creflo Dollar, Joyce Meyer. These are all the same same scam, same peddled heresy, just repackaged. Now, what are their major doctrinal teachings? Well, in a nutshell, the uh, health and wealth teachings are 
basically mm, shifts on what we would consider orthodox biblical exegesis. And what I mean by that is, while prosperity gospel proponents would hold to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus and everything that I would proclaim that goes along with it, they extend it to the realm of the believer and his sin to include sins of illness and poverty. Therefore, within the atonement are the provisions by God to the believer for, quote-unquote, health and wealth. Now, the prosperity gospel movement also builds out the idea of the Imago Dei from Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Now, you are made in the image of God. And they include this, that man is not just in the image and likeness of God, but that he is after the kind of God. So, follow me here. Dogs, cats, horses, you know, you name the critter, and it produces after their kind. Genesis 1, 20 through 25, you'll notice that's one of the refrains, and after their kind, after their kind, after their kind. Anderson Genesis has done an excellent job of understanding that and applying that to Noah's Ark, by the way, so go check out those resources. Now, if that's the case there, God must have made his people after his kind. This is how the argument goes. Therefore, people's words matter. Why? Because God creates by a word. Therefore, his kind can and should likewise do the same. Welcome to what we refer to as name-it-claim-it theology, which is really based upon the idea of believers being quote-unquote little gods. And there's some New Testament justification for this, but it's, it's flimsy at best, and, and we're going to get into why shortly. Now, they also have a heavy emphasis upon the principle of sowing and reaping. If you don't believe me, turn on a telethon for five minutes, and then you'll you understand what I'm talking about. This is the uh, the amalgamation of uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 9. And within prosperity churches, it relates to God's blessing the faithful tithing believer. So you have to be a faithful believer, you have to be a tithing believer, and the principle walks alongside positive confession, quote-unquote, you know, speaking good things about yourself. These are the main drivers that enable the Christian to receive the blessings of God. Now, if I have upset you already by naming one of your favorite TV preachers, good. Um, If you have no idea why they're bad, stick around, we're going to tell you. The prosperity gospel is a movement that has some actual biblical theology. Yay! Go team! We've, we've mentioned some of it already. Therefore, our evaluation of it needs to be based upon their handling of the biblical material, and that is both in our understanding and in our corrective. So, what we want to do is we actually want to look at some of the proof texts of the prosperity gospel and actually address them somewhat. More importantly... We want to attack, though, the underlying worldview assumptions of the prosperity gospel by defining ourselves rightly biblically. So we'll, we're going to get to that. So first, why why is the big bad man on my phone? Because let's be honest, nobody's listening to this on the radio. Why is the big bad man on my phone telling me these people are heretics? Off-quoted justification for prosperity theology, Malachi 3.10. Or, as I like to say, the great Italian prophet Malachi. Malachi 3.10, the people of Israel are commanded to tithe completely in order to test God's faithfulness as he will bless their obedience. So this is bring all of the tithe into the storehouse. This is your verse. Now, if we ignore the obvious context of Malachi chapter 3, it's the Messiah and his arrival. You cannot possibly move this text directly to the New Testament church. And here's where I'm really going to annoy some people. 
for starters, we have no land that we are to possess. This is why we don't pray Second um, Chronicles 7.14. We don't have a land for God to heal. We are living in a foreign land as believers. We'll get to that more in a minute. And therefore, we also have no tithe we are commanded to give. I take that from Second Corinthians 9.7. Therefore, we cannot be blessed for giving and or cursed for not giving. And, and yes, I'm serious about the tithing thing. I absolutely am serious about the tithing thing. The tithe is an Old Testament standard. It was 10% for the work of the priests, and then the tax base really brought your income up to around 20 to 25%, depending on who you were and where you lived, that you were forfeiting for the work of the nation and the temple. This is not commanded in the New Testament because, once again, we're not Israel. We're not funding a Christian nation. Now, should you tithe at church? No. Should you give it, church? Yes. Why? The worker, is worth, the worker is worthy of his wages. We are contributing to the cause and continuance and furtherance of the gospel. I've said this before in my church. I'll say it again till the end of time. If your church is not teaching rightly and not working for the furtherance of the gospel, don't give them any money. That would be poor stewardship. Instead, find a church that is rightly teaching and preaching. It is rightly working to the furtherance and continuation of the gospel. And give generously. Give joyfully give greatly, not so that God will bless you, but because in Christ, God already has blessed you. Now, let's go back to uh, good old Malachi here. Rather than seeing the tithe carried forward, and rather than seeing the uh, quid pro quo of Malachi 3, the illusion within Malachi 3 is to repentance and faith, and, and I can prove it. The prosperity adherent goes off the rails biblically trying to handle this. What we want to do is see it rightly. So let's rewind to verses 1 through 6. Where do you have there? You have the Messiah coming in judgment upon a rebellious people. It's the beginning of the chapter. God is then warning them to return to him so that he can bless them, which is Malachi 3.7. He then points out their sin, Malachi 3.8 and 9, and invites them to return to their trusting of him for both mercy and provision. This is Malachi 3.10 about bringing the tithe into the storehouse. But God doesn't stop there. If they do this, God's mercy will show and his provision will be sufficient. This is verses 11 and 12. But God still isn't done. He then accuses the people of speaking against him, verses 13 through 15, and some who are listening hear this and repent, verse 16. They are then recorded in God's book, set aside as righteous, 17 and 18. This has nothing to do with crops. Rather, this is the heart of the people before God. Those who hear and repent are saved. Those who do not are going to face the judgment of the Messiah from the beginning of the chapter when he comes. A wicked heart will be self-centered, greedy, arrogant, and proud. And they will therefore be cast out. A pure heart will be God-honoring, generous, humble, and faithful, and they will therefore be saved by God. How do you get that good heart? By repenting of the sin that God has accused you of and trusting that when judgment comes, it will come well upon you because of God and not yourself. See, seeing your context is key. Now, John 10.10, 10, Jesus proclaims what? I come that they may have life and have it. Oh, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. Abundantly, which is awesome. It's great, but... It is without context and definition. 
if you define this, as the prosperity gospel does, in a worldly manner, so you have worldly pleasure, worldly progress, worldly provision, you have defined the work of Christ as in this life only. And, and I think, I'm not sure, but I think there's actually a Bible verse that warns you that if we've defined Christ in long form in this world only, we are of all men most miserable, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. See, we can't do that. We have to understand the abundance of life in Christ is commensurate with all that he has promised. Go to someplace like Luke 4, 18 and 19, where he's promising freedom, sight to the blind, restoration of those that have been lost. These are the ideas that are the fruits of the gospel in the believer. It is not material possessions or health in this life. It is rather an inheritance with Christ. Likewise, let's go to the prayer of John for the church pastored by Gaius in 3 John verse 2. There are no chapters in 3 John, so you just say 3 John 2. What is he praying for? That they would have health and prosperity. Awesome. This is good. Now, real quick. It's a prayer, people. It's a prayer. If John could just show up, or not even just show up, just decree that they would have health and prosperity, why doesn't he? If Gaius, as the good elder of this church, could just proclaim it and it would be, why doesn't he? Hmm. Second, we would love for our fellow believers to be blessed by God in this life with prosperity of a material nature and with good health. Duh. I've never met a pastor yet who has beloved people in his church praying, God, I pray that you would make them poor and destitute and sickly all the days of their life. Why? Because we love them. And because we love them, we want good things for them. So I pray that your business would flourish. I pray that your job would promote you and that you would work well. And I pray that you would be in good health all the days of your life until God calls you home. I would want this for all of my people. I'm also a realist. I know it's not coming. Doesn't mean I don't want it. Same with John. John, who had watched by this point, writing in the 90s AD. Yes, I'm a post... Um, post-destruction of temple for John writing guy. John writing at this time has seen all the other apostles die. He has seen everyone he has grown up with and ministered basically gone on to be with the Lord. And yet here he is still hoping what? That this new generation will have what? Health and prosperity. This is good. We don't live our lives in search of it. We live our lives in hope, knowing that if nothing else, we will have what? Dedicated, humble service to God. We're going to transition to our correction with our last problem here with the uh, prosperity gospel. And that's the misappropriation of what we call the phenomenon of Scripture. The doctrines of the prosperity gospel and the teachers within the movement hyper-emphasize the unity of Scripture to the detriment of the context of the Old Testament. If you'd like an example of this, go back to what we just did with Malachi chapter 3. Within the movement, there is no consistent hermeneutical tenet which unfortunately is a hallmark of Pentecostalism that gets borrowed and abused by the prosperity gospel teachers. And I, and I don't say that lovingly or, you know, joyfully. I, I lovingly would ask all you prosperity, not prosperity, all you Pentecostal guys to, look, just handle your Bible rightly and demonstrate it to your people. I, I disagree that you're getting a word from the Lord, but I, I'm not going to fight you over it as long as you handle your Bible correctly. And when you see people that don't, you call them to account. Unfortunately, prosperity gospel guys get away with this because they, they typically give you that God told me or God showed me shtick, and, and then they stick it into their Bible. Because of that, they have both an ability and a willingness. Lord knows they have a willingness to point the Bible to the believer 
rather than point the believer through the Bible to Christ. And this is why this is so important. What the prosperity gospel does is make your giving not about obedience to God, but it makes it about you receiving something. It makes your health not about a blessing from God, but about you receiving something. It makes it not about a praise of God, but a praise of you. It likewise makes too many of the Bible stories about you. And this is something that evangelical Christianity has borrowed upon. If you've ever heard a sermon on David and Goliath about what are the Goliaths in your life, or what are your five smooth stones that you need to pick up. You have heard the prosperity gospels hermeneutics sneaking into evangelical life. And if you could hear that, that was my neck. And I'm sorry that I just, it gets sore after a while and I have to crack it like that. So I'm sorry if that like just made you cringe if you heard that. If you didn't hear that, then I'm a raving lunatic. Don't worry about it. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's, so let's dig back into this. Our correctives to these problems are obviously, in light of what we discussed, going to be textual in nature. They have to be. So right off the bat, our starting point is, what is our definition of our place in this world from a biblical perspective? If we can do that, we can avoid the errors and pitfalls of the prosperity gospel and remember rightly the consistent teachings and warnings of Scripture. So, what's your starting point of your destiny? Your fate in this world, you know, your purpose. We will give an account to God, Romans 14, 12. But we may be called also to, by God to give an account here, in this world. I mean, Jesus warned you of this very real outcome, Luke 21, 12 through 19. But he also told you that, he pro- that it was a, an opportunity for praise and testimony. See, this was good. And the New Testament writers did not lose sight of this teaching from Christ, but instead climbed up to the highest thing they could find and screamed it as loudly as they could. Peter tells you, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, that we'll be distressed by various trials, the result of which is what? The revealing of our faith. James, first written book of the New Testament between 44 and 49 AD. I'm, I'm hanging on that. First written book of the New Testament. Um, verses 1, um, so James, one, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, dives right into the admonition to do what? Bear up under trial, which will do what? Prove your faith and purify you in your faith. Paul doesn't get left out, Romans 5, uh, 3 through 5, which, by the way, Romans, his most systematic and thorough letter, what does he tell you after he's explained all this deadness and sin in life in Christ? Man. All right, my throat keeps trying out of me. He tells the believers what? Revel in your tribulation. Exult in it. Why? Because it will bring about faith and hope and trust. See, this is, this is not new because it is the consistent knowledge of the world for the believer. We, talking about us, as redeemed believers in Christ, are not to be at home in this world. That's James 4.4. This world, in its current state, is given over to her sins and guided by her spiritual head. This would be your Romans chapter 1, uh, 18 through uh, 32, and your Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, the prince of the power of the air. That's why Jesus warns us that we are a peculiar that's strange people, and therefore we will have trouble because 
he had trouble and we are his. That's John 15, 18 through 20. Peter calls the church under persecution. That's the context of First Peter is the church under persecution to recognize this new peculiar citizenship and live in this world as though they were aliens and strangers. That's First uh, Peter 2, 9 through 12. Paul also pointed the believer to a hope and a home and a revelation that is not, not here. But in Christ, this is your Colossians 3, and John clearly warned against the dangers of living for this world over against the good world of God that is to come. This is your 1 John 2, 15 through 17. They consistently pointed you what? Away from here and towards eternity. Second corrective, understand the word rightly. That means we have to understand what this book we call the Bible actually is. This is the phenomenon of Scripture we mentioned earlier. What is? What am I talking about? Forty different authors who individually wrote 66 different books. That writing took place over the course of 1,500 years plus and was accomplished in three languages while on multiple continents. Now, that's a terrible recipe for a book. But it's the recipe God used, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, to produce one message of Scripture. And that's a message that is not focused on us, but rather it is focused upon Christ. See, Jesus is the end-all, be-all of creation in biblical testimony, John 5, 33 through 47. And this is why in the midst of hardships, they did not leave, John 6, 66 through 68. See, Jesus, not me, Jesus is the fulfillment of the ages. Jesus is the culmination of the longing of humanity, Genesis three fifteen, And in him is the end of our suffering. The Bible is a testimony to God and his work in us, not our work for ourselves. And the apostolic witness is, is clear on this one. They saw this and repeatedly proclaimed it, not their greatness, but God's. And if you don't believe me, go, go listen to what I just said about Peter and Paul and, and James and John and Jesus. This is always about pointing people higher, not lower. Therefore, they strove to push the church and the believers therein to a faith in God that went beyond this life. And therefore into the world that is to come. Why? So that God would be praised and his people would be saved. This was why they wrote, 2 Peter 3, 14-18, Not the glory of themselves or us, but the glory and praise of God, because he is the one who has done this, and he is the one who has saved us. Now, I made mention of this and alluded to it earlier. I want to I dive into it a little bit right now just to kind of, if you haven't gotten upset with me yet, okay, this, this one might do it. And if not, then we can be pals. Call me. Um, we have to understand this because too many otherwise solid evangelical churches have borrowed from this theology. I mentioned the, uh, the smooth stones and the Goliaths in your life, but this is the same problem. I mean, how many good ministries are telling Christians that God is judging America? And he might be. For, for those of you that are in Australia and England, and England downloading and listening, um, you may have heard this about your nations as well. But God is judging America, and if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves, I will hear from heaven and heal their land. This isn't our land! Yeah, yeah I know we wrote a song, this land is my land, this land is your land, but it's not our land. It, it's a country. We are citizens of heaven. It, it's a nation. We are servants in his kingdom. 
Therefore, if our land is judged, while well, we may mourn the loss of life and the destruction of our prosperity and the, and the lack of health and helpfulness and good freedoms that we may have, we can rightly see the judgment against sin and rejoice, knowing that even if we're caught up in the midst of that judgment, our future fate is with God, not lostness. So we can't borrow from this. And so what ends up happening is too many sermons in too many churches are devoid of biblical basis for the uh, quote-unquote application that they espouse. And and what I mean by that is we've got way too much man-centeredness in our approach to preaching and teaching. And when that happens, we lose our perspective of God and his work in the world. See, this is what happens when a Pentecostal prosperity gospel group starts out small and just keeps going. They infect every aspect of the Christian world. We, if you're not listening to teaching that's from the Bible week after week, then you're not... And you, I don't want to say this. <laughs> if you're listening to teaching week after week and you are not required to have any working knowledge of Scripture to understand it, you're not listening to Christian teaching. And what I mean by that is, if you, if you can just sit down and get a couple of principles that you're going to apply in your cul-de-sac, then that's not Christian. If there's not an actual biblical basis for what is being told and what you're supposed to do about it, that's not Christian biblical theology. We have to be willing to be challenged, not personally as in, well, that, that sermon really stepped on my toes, Bob. I, I really felt that one. No, I don't want to challenge you personally. I want to challenge you biblically. I want you to think through the why and the how of your day-to-day life to see whether or not it is grounded in the commands and the precepts of God. This is where the majority of Christian failure comes. See, we give you your five smooth stones, or we tell you to tackle the Goliaths of your life, or we ask you what's the Red Sea that you need to part, and what's the dry ground you need to walk on. Likewise, if you don't like those, we give you five keys to happier marriages, or seven principles for raising your children, or eight ways to be a better boss. You know, we give you all of these things, and and it's bunk. It's absolutely bunk. It is Christian knees. We need biblically grounded understanding. So take the marriage one. I could give you five keys to a better marriage, or I can give you a biblical presentation that shows you God's design function and command concerning dating, relationships, and marriage that you can then use to build out your life when you are dating, married, and or in a relationship. If I do that, I don't care what five principles I've got. Your marriage will be sound because it'll be based on a godly foundation. I don't need to tell you how to be a better employee. I need to build out a theology of what is vocation, What is your responsibility at work before God? Why do you work as an offering to God? And when you internalize this and use this as your foundation, you'll be a better employee. You'll be a better boss. You'll treat your employer and your employees better because you are doing it for God, not based on some principle that some dude in skinny jeans gave you on a Sunday morning. And yes, men, stop wearing skinny jeans. It's in the Bible somewhere. If it's not, we'll we'll put it in there. Finally, let me get off my soapbox and get to a practical note. And this is maybe the most important one. This heresy doesn't work. The apostles, who had way more knowledge and faith than any modern-day pastor or preacher, died. 
the Old Testament saints, except for Enoch and Elijah, who had way closer knowledge and relationship with God, died. Every current Bible teacher you have ever heard of has either died or will die. Disease, death, devastation, and destruction, you like that alliteration, are all a part of our sinful fallen world, Romans 8, 18-25. To deny this is to rob the departed saints and martyrs of old of the glorious testimony to God that they rendered by cheapening their sacrifices a lesser faith. I mean, think about this. Well, Polycarp could have had a better relationship with the Romans if he'd just read my five principles on how to be a better citizen. Or, you know, Justin Martyr wouldn't be named Martyr if he just had his, if he just had my eight principles for how to love your neighbor and make friends. No, they sacrificed their lives upon the altar of godliness. How dare we say if they had done better or known more, that would not have happened. That, that's evil. That, that's just flat out evil. See, instead, our healing, our life, our security, and our peace are to be found not here but in Christ in eternity. This is what Revelation 21 is showing you. There, and only there in eternity, will we be secure and at home with God. Anything else, anything else, is a lesser thing. And that's what the prosperity gospel is trying to sell you. A lesser thing. Don't buy it. Now, that was fun. A couple of quick announcements. Um, We've had some new expansions with me figuring out how some things work. So if you've been listening to this on Podbean and we're the only thing you listen to on Podbean, you can find this on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts. I've been told you can find it on Spotify and Pandora now as well. So I don't know how that works, but if you can find it on those platforms and you like them better, use them. Give us a good review and recommendation so other people will find us. Share this with your friends and neighbors so we can continue to get what we hope is good biblical theology out into the world where people can actually do something with it and digest it. Um, any questions on what I've said, you can find the write-up on this at practicaltheologyministries.com. It'll be on the blog. You can also get uh, links to our uh, newsletter. You can read past issues, sign up to have that delivered to you an email. You can get links to the church, Calvary Baptist Church in Rockford, Illinois, where you're welcome to worship with us. We'll still be live streaming that here on Podbean. Oh, got a pause there. Fire truck's flying by us. Um, you can worship with us on Sunday mornings, 1030 Central Daylight Time, which is minus 6 UTC. You can... Hop on here on Podbean and stream along with us. And if you don't like that, you can find the church's YouTube channel and watch the uh, the sermon from the Sunday. It's usually posted on a Monday afternoon. If you have any questions, send them to me, info at practicaltheologyministries.com. I promise to make Lou, when he gets back in here, answer every single one of them. And if he doesn't, I will, and we'll have good with it, good fun with it nonetheless. So I think that covers it. Until next time, read your Bible. It'll do you good. <laughs>